The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. He who does not remember the past is destined to repeat it. Philosopher George Santayana's words have been quoted often enough to count as a cliche, but that's because there's so much truth in them. And yet, remembering the past is often the province of musty books and required courses, unless you're lucky enough to access living history from someone who was there. We have this opportunity today with Dr. Alex Hershaft. He survived the Nazi occupation of Poland. He lost most of his family in the Holocaust And he was there to midwife animal rights from an embryo to a movement to be reckoned with. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. I'm your host, Victoria Moran. I'm so happy to have all of you with us today. We're sponsored this hour by alpineorganics.co, whose Complement Plus is the supplement made by vegans for vegans, providing vitamin B12, D3, the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, and a smattering of other vital nutrients to complement a health-promoting plant-exclusive diet. Meat-free athlete Matt Frazier heads up the company. Vegan dietitian Pamela Ferguson, Ph.D., is on the team, along with Joel Kahn, M.D. I take compliment every single day, so does everybody in my family. And if you put Main Street Vegan in capital letters in the discount box, you'll get a friends and family discount at alpineorganics.co. And now to the veggie meat of our show, introducing the legendary Dr. Alex Hershaft. He's just begun the vegan blog, which you can find at theveganblog.org, a fascinating new semi-monthly blog about the history, the successes and failures, and the likely future prospects of the U.S. animal rights movement. And it is brought to you by Alex Hershaft, the movement's eldest statesman. He's founding president of FARM, the Farm Animal Rights Movement, founder of the Great American Meat Out, World Day for Farmed Animals, and founder and former chair of the Animal Rights National Conference. He has been inducted into both the Animal Rights and the Vegetarian Halls of Fame. Welcome, Dr. Alex Hershaft. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. It's such an honor and pleasure to be on your podcast and uh, talk to your viewers and listeners Well, it's an honor to have you back. I know you were here once before, but it was just a short segment. So I'm so happy that we're going to be able to talk today with uh, enough time to really get into what you're all about and what this movement is all about and where it's headed based on someone with your depth of experience. So let's just start with the new stuff. What led you to launch the vegan blog? A couple of things. So uh, first, uh, as you mentioned, being the eldest uh, statesman in the animal rights movement in the U.S., I kind of felt uh, obligated to uh, do a critical history of our movement. Uh, What particularly bothered me was the fact that uh, there were about between 40 and 50 people in the movement of the caliber of you and me, I mean, real, real major stalwarts 
that made the movement happen, and they're gone. Uh, and people in the movement today don't even know they ever existed. So I wanted to make sure that uh, people who are in the movement today uh, recognized and uh, honored these pioneers. So that was my original motivation. And then I realized that uh, we're taking a lot of things for granted that really require broader discussion. Such things as, for example, uh, should we be uh, pursuing animal rights or animal lives? And uh, those two things, even though they, they, they sound like the same thing, they're very different in terms of the strategies that we would uh, pursue to achieve those goals. Uh, there are uh, other more philosophical issues, such as who is a vegan? You know, we basically are so happy uh, to have people uh, become, quote, vegans, unquote, that uh, that all we ask of them is they stop eating animals and the dairy and eggs. But uh, other people, uh, especially people who've been vegan for a while, uh, have the, uh, a more complex definition, uh, such as... Uh, not uh, oppressing other animals, not just animals raised for food. And uh, maybe even beyond that, embracing the concept of ahimsa, which is, of course, uh, what fuels Buddhism and Jainism. And, and it's the concept of not harming any living beings, uh, no matter uh, whether they're human or non-human animals. So there are issues such as that that I want to bring up in the blog. It's a very interesting blog, and it's and uh, and one of the things I'm very aware of is that blogs need to be short and punchy and interesting. And so, so far we have uh, had five installments, mostly historical, uh, and the next one will probably be historical as well. And then I'll get into some of the more controversial issues. Mm. Well, just tell me who some of the colleagues were in those early days, people who are no longer with us that some people may not know about. Sure. Well, uh, one of the, one of the uh, I mean, the person who really put the, the animal rights uh, concept on the map was uh, the media uh, giant Cleveland Amory. Uh, he uh, he was probably the most prominent person in the national media in the 60s and 70s, and uh, he was not even he was not even a vegan, but he really believed uh, in uh, in the concept of animal rights. And when uh, Alex Pacheco uh, brought him the photographs and videos of animal abuse at the Biomedical Research Institute in 1981, Cleveland realized what an explosive potential these uh, visuals have. And uh, he basically put us um, into the public consciousness because of his media contacts. Wow. Uh, Alex, Pacheco, Alex Pacheco is another one. Uh, who He's still alive, he, though. <laughs> Still alive? Oh, oh, they're not all dead. <laughs> they're not all dead. They're, they're We're just, not all uh, dead. They're, <laughs> they're just uh, have been cast. Uh, they're out of the movement for one reason or another. Another was Richard Morgan, who uh, had the biggest demonstrations in the history of the movement, uh, other than the march in Washington, back in 1981 and 82. He organized uh, marches on the four primate research centers, which attracted around 2,000 people each. This was when the movement had been barely born. Uh, just people like that. 
You're bringing back memories. And I do want to update people on Alex Pacheco. He has been on the program, and he has an organization now called 500 Million Dogs. And their goal is to get an effective birth control kibble for the 500 million stray dogs around the world and bring that population down until there is no longer a stray dog walking the streets of this planet. So hooray for 500 million uh, dogs.org. Um, so Alex, when you say that Cleveland Amory wasn't vegan, I can just imagine how that sounds to a young vegan for whom being vegan is the absolute foundation of being able to say that you care about animals. But it was different back in the 60s and 70s. Can you kind of paint a picture of what it was like back then? Well, the, 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 probably the, the most important thing people have to keep in mind that until the mid-70s, it was general consensus, which I shared, by the way, that eating animal products is essential to human health. When I became a vegetarian in 1961, I fully expected to get sick, and I thought that maybe before I died, I would uh, eat a hamburger and then get better and then continue my work. And, you know, uh, well, okay, so I had a PhD in chemistry when I was harboring those thoughts, okay? This was the prevailing knowledge back then. It wasn't until, well, uh, it was uh, Francis Mourlapé in 1971 first cast some doubt on that with publishing Diet for a Small Planet. Uh, she had this uh, arrangement of complementary proteins. Do you remember that? Oh, that absolutely. Ate, and it still crops yeah, up. Yeah. If you ate beans and rice, uh, you would get the complementary proteins and you wouldn't need meat. So that was uh, just, a, that never really caught on. It, 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 but it, it was the first crack in this necessity to eat animal products. And it wasn't really until 1977 when the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs published uh, its first uh, dietary goals for the United States, that, that people finally understood that meat was not essential to the diet. So that was kind of what governed the early movement. The people in the, who were just getting started back in the 70s uh, were basically doing this at the peril of their own health. Yeah, uh, we were definitely pioneers. And uh, I know I tried to be vegan throughout the 70s, and I kept falling off the wagon and eating some cheese or eggs and finally made it to vegan in the early 80s. I wish it had been sooner, but history is history. <laughs> And you can't rewrite yeah. it. So you said something else interesting, Alex, that I think people would love for you to riff on a little bit. You said there's a difference between do we want animal rights or animal lives? I've never heard that before. Explain it. Sure. Well, so uh, animal rights, of course, is a pretty vague concept. Uh, it's, it's basically an expression that kind of implies that people who were active in uh, movements for uh, human rights, for social justice, should also do the same for animals. Well, there are huge differences between, uh, say, somebody who was uh, campaigning for women's rights in uh, the beginning of the 20th century or somebody who was uh, trying to work for Americans with Disabilities Act or somebody promoting the gay marriages and on one hand and and us trying to work for animal rights and the <clears throat> the there are a number of differences the the biggest probably is the fact that none of those other rights required people to change their lifestyle we are the only movement that requires people, adherents, to change their lifestyle three times a day. 
Another important difference is that, and the last time that we asked people to change their lifestyle in connection with uh, social justice was uh, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln in 1863, I believe. And of course, that cost around 700,000 lives in the Civil War that followed. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen here. But anyway, uh, and and then, uh, uh, but in the case, but in each case, there was a very tangible, a very small request that we were making. In the case of of gay folks, we were just saying let's recognize their marriages. In the case of uh, uh, folks with disabilities, says let's you know let's make the places wheelchair accessible and that so so forth. There were there were small, well defined uh, requests. What we're asking for is something very fundamental, which is basically the right to life, the right to bodily integrity, and the and the right to freedom of movement. Which uh, you know would basically, uh, if if made into a law, which some people think is possible, it would just totally uh, revolutionize uh, our social norms. So uh, so basically, when people ask me about animal rights, I basically tell them, look, let's make it simple. It's not about them, it's about us. It's about how we relate to the most vulnerable, the most oppressed sentient beings on Earth. That's it. And that usually... Hence the argument. Now, people who are into animal rights are very idealistic, and uh, they're very insistent on uh, ideological purity. People who are into animal lives have only one purpose in mind, which is to reduce the number of animals that are killed for food each year in the United States. Now, those people are not talking about animal rights and they're not working on animal rights. They are working on changing the American food system and uh, replacing uh, animal products with plant-based products. And in doing so, uh, it's not just a matter of mixing things in a Petri dish in a laboratory you also get into bed with people who market, process and market foods, including meat companies. And that, uh, that is anathema to people who espouse animal rights. The concept of working with Tyson's Foods or any of the other meat companies is, is inconceivable, but that people who are working to save animal lives have no other choice because the meat companies are the ones that have the marketing facilities that govern the American food system. And so people need to make a decision whether they want to work on this vague concept of animal rights or and uh, 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 and saving animal lives and in my case i am working on animal rights but only because i don't have the means to to do the other in other words i don't i i mean i can invest in companies that produce plant based foods but i don't have any direct role in that movement so do you think that these two efforts are opposing one another? They are not opposing one another. They're ignoring one another. <laughs> okay. Ah, I thought you were going to say complimenting. That's interesting, ignoring. <laughs> Could you explain that? Well, uh, so... Uh, they basically uh, they, they basically each pursue their mission uh you know and and just uh, 
yeah, just 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 do their own thing. And hope, hopefully to the good of the animals. I remember Jay Dinshaw used to say, pity the poor animals, their only hope is us. You know, they're depending on the humans, and we have our foibles. So, Alex, in, in this uh, Rosh Hashanah week, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody who is celebrating this week, I do want to go back into your journey. Your very first blog post talked about your journey from the Holocaust. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, so the uh, my Holocaust experience has definitely shaped my uh, activism in uh, in strange ways, but uh, I, I recognize that it has, and uh, I have uh, lectured about it, and I have a website about it. It's called the NeverAgain.org. But there is a hyphen between never and again. So it's never-again.org. And uh, what it was is uh, when when my life was no longer in danger, uh, which was uh, mostly in 1945 when the war ended, but also after I emigrated to the United States in 51, uh, I I started thinking about the uh, about you know what what is the lesson that we can learn from the Holocaust. So normally, when mankind suffers some major disaster like the plague, uh, we come up with antibiotics. Uh, when uh, you know, right now we have global warming, so we're trying to reduce greenhouse emissions. So normally, uh, the, the, in fact, the, you, you could argue that the success of the human species, such as it is, is due mostly to our ability to learn from our past, from our history, as you so aptly pointed out in your introductory remarks from the the wisdom of George Santayana about uh, those who don't remember history are condemned to repeat it. But I asked myself, what is the lesson that we have learned from the Holocaust? And uh, the the glib answer is never again. Uh, and and uh, when we were uh, repeating that to that mantra to ourselves, our thought was never again would mean that the world would be so shocked by what the Nazis did to us that they would never allow any genocide to occur in the future, that the world would be a changed world after the war because of what we had suffered. But of course, uh, that was not the case at all. Uh, As we know, a number of uh, major disasters happened uh so for example in uh, in 1971 as many as 3 million hindus were slaughtered in bangladesh in the late 1970s a similar number of ethnic minorities were murdered by the despotic pol pot regime in cambodia nearly a million tutsis were murdered in rwanda in the 1990s so we we know that that that's not working. So, is there is there a better lesson? And I couldn't come up with an answer until in 1972. I was hired by an environmental consulting firm, and my specialty was wastewater management. And I was sent to a, a Midwest slaughterhouse to do an inventory of their wastewater needs. And I was walking around through their waste areas, taking notes. I turned a corner, and I saw these piles of uh, heads and lungs and hearts and hooves. And uh, uh, I was taken aback, as most people would. And immediately, memories of the piles of human body parts that I saw 
in Auschwitz came flooding into my mind. The, the piles of shoes and glasses and hair. And I, I kept repeating to myself, oh, but they're only animals. It doesn't really matter. But but it wouldn't go away. The 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 I just couldn't get get rid of the analogies, and and I figured that since I'm a scientist, you know, maybe I should do a little more research. And the more research I did, the more troublesome I found the similarities. For example, the skin branding or tattooing of serial numbers to identify the victims, the use of cattle cars to transport victims to their deaths, the crowding and housing of victims in wood crates, the arbitrary designation of who lives and who dies, you know, like the Christian lives, the Jew dies, the dog lives, the pig dies, the objectification and abuse of the victims to make killing more acceptable. And I just learned this recently, but uh, they still use gas chambers in Germany to kill animals. I, I could not believe that. But I was there actually a few weeks ago, and I actually visited a slaughterhouse that uses gas chambers. Unbelievable. So, so anyway, uh, I, uh, I it was very confusing, and 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 then uh, I, I I thought I was going crazy. It was sleepless nights, and it was very very bothersome. And then I saw a quote by Isaac Bashevis Singer, the Nobel laureate. Hold, hold uh, the quote. We'll get that after the break. We'll be right back with okay. more Alex Hershaft, Ph.D. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Victoria Moran. You can find out more about what I do at MainStreetVegan.net, where, among other things, you will find this week's blog post, which I wrote myself, called A Vegan Take on the Rebirth of Wonder. Maybe you studied that Lawrence Ferlinghetti poem back in school. Well, I think A Rebirth of Wonder comes from living a vegan life. So you might want to take a look over there, MainStreetVegan.net. We're continuing now with my extraordinary guest, Alex Hershaft, PhD, of all sorts of organizations and accolades, and newly, TheVeganBlog.org. So Isaac, when the... Uh, Isaac. Um, <laughs> Alex... When the um, the break happened, you were just talking about the Isaac Bashiva Singer quote that changed your life. Please continue. Yeah, basically, he he wrote a number of stories, and uh, abstracting from the stories comes the quote that to the animals, all people are Nazis. And to the animals, life is an eternal Treblinka. Treblinka, of course, refers to the extermination camp uh, that was built specifically to exterminate the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, where I was living. But anyway, so that gave me a lot of comfort to realize uh, not only that there was another human being who shared my revulsion at uh, what we do to animals, but also a person as distinguished as a Nobel laureate. So that finally gave me some peace and, and launched me on this path of exploring 
the lesson that could be learned. And the first, uh, there are a number of lessons that could be learned from the Holocaust, but the, the first lesson is that uh, no matter how enlightened a society is, and no matter how enlightened individuals are, they are, both societies and individuals are capable of committing horrible acts given social approval of these acts. And uh, I find that uh, translates perfectly to our own country, the United States, uh, and not just for animals. I mean, I was recently reading a history of our uh, uh, war in Vietnam, where uh, our soldiers, our sons and daughters were committing horrible atrocities against uh, civilians, not just in Vietnam, but also in the neighboring Laos and Cambodia. And uh, of course, uh, we, our best friends, do this every day to the animals here in the United States. We do indeed. Wow. Now, I do see that we have a caller, and I believe I know who the caller is. We're going to just take a little turn from what we have been discussing. We will return to this in a few minutes. But joining us now, just because of breaking news, you know, on a podcast, they always tell you, just treat it like the great eternity. Don't talk about what's going on now. But we're a live radio show before we're a podcast. And I think that when something happens that affects the vegan world or the plant-based world, it's important to address that. So as we are speaking on October 2nd, 2019, we're a day after many, many news outlets around the world featured a study that was done saying, eat all the meat you want, red meat, processed meats, they're back, they're good again. And so I did want someone who is expert at reading studies and understanding these things to come on and share just a few minutes of expertise on this with us. So joining us from South Carolina, where she is involved in a five-year NIH study looking at traditional soul food alongside of whole food plant-based soul food and seeing what kinds of results come from that is Marty Davey. M-S-R-D. Welcome to the program, Marty. Thank you so much. Um, and we are in the middle of getting ready for our participants to come in and um, do another class with us at the New Soul Study, which is at the University of South Carolina. So I have... Um, so I'm really happy that I do have a minute to, to kind of <laughs> give some information about this. Great. Well, just just tell us first what this study said and if we should worry about it. Uh, well, the study um, was a 14-member self-appointed panel. So that to me is something really um, pretty odd. I mean, why would you have a self-appointed panel? But anyway, um, so those 14 people, out of them, only two of them were, uh, were actual nutrition scientists. And the other thing that just talking about the panel was that three members of the panel voted against the recommendations. So that was something that I thought was really interesting. Um, one of the other things is that they, um, they looked at when you're running a nutrition st a study, it's generally called an observational study. And this panel looked at what we call a meta-analysis. So they looked at a whole bunch of different stuff, okay? They looked at a whole lot of studies and decided these are the ones that count, these are the ones that don't count, and we're going to look at what are called randomized trials, okay? That just means that those are considered the gold study. But imagine someone says to you, hey, would you like to be in a nutrition study where we talk about, where we find out like what you eat and what you do? And you say, yes. And they say, okay, well, we're going to put you in a lab for 20 years and we're going to feed you red meat. And then there's going to be this other group of people and we're not going to give them red meat and you're going to live in a lab for 20 years. That would never happen. That is basically what you have in a randomized um, control trial. 
So what we look at are what call, are called observational studies. So we look at people for a long time and we get our information or our data looking at them saying, okay, so we've been watching you guys for 20 years. And what we found is that the people who ate red meat um, had a mortality rate that was higher. Had everybody who was doing this thing has this outcome. So what we have seen through observational tr studies for, and these are, we're talking like 70 years of studies here, um, is that there is a very strong, uh, it's a significant component that says, okay, if you're going to eat red meat, you are going to have a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, much higher risk of cancer, much higher risk of uh, type 2 diabetes. So that's sort of the difference between what they were looking at. They were like, okay, we are only going to look at randomized uh, control studies. Well, that really doesn't work because you don't get cancer in a week or you don't get cancer in six weeks. You generally, it takes a long time. Same thing for cardiovascular disease. Same thing for type 2 diabetes. So the whole premise of the study was kind of weird. Um, the other thing is that I was looking at the fourth systematic review. It has five reviews in it, okay? And this fourth part was based on the Women's Health Initiative study. And this is where they really say, oh, look, you should eat red meat. Nothing happened. Well, they're basing that on a study which was, uh, when you have a study, like our study says, if you eat this, you will have that outcome, okay? That's what a study starts with, a hypothesis. You do this that happened. The Women's Health Initiative study was a low-fat study. It was not a meat reduction study. So I don't even understand how they could look at it because it's not about what they were saying their hypothesis was. Does that make sense? It does indeed. So very quickly, I know you're busy and uh, yep. I know Alex has nope. lots more to say, but for the listeners whose friends and relatives are calling them saying, yeah, 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 now I can have my burgers again, <laughs> what do we very quickly say to them? We just say, you know what, those were based on taste. If we all based our analyses and guidelines, that was the killer. They said these are guidelines guidelines based on taste. If we based things on taste, we would all be drinking scotch and eating Captain Crunch. So you can't go on that part of the study. The other thing is they were not looking at what they said they were going to talk about were not the studies. A lot of the studies they were looking at had nothing to do with what they said the recommendations were. So again, they were comparing apples and oranges and telling us, okay, now you can eat grapes. Didn't make uh -huh. any sense. That's really what I got from it. Well, I think if we eat apples and oranges, we're going to have the best shot at a long, healthy life. And thank you so much, Marty Davey, registered dietitian. And thanks for all the great work you're doing down there. Thank you for giving me a chance just to kind of clarify for people. Don't worry about it. We have, the, we have lots and lots of research that says this is kind of silly. And, it's and, and read pass. beyond the headlines. I think that's another yeah, uh, message from headlines. this. Uh, Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much, Marty. Okay, Alex. You yes, still here? Very illuminating. Very illuminating. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And I, it's funny, you know, some of the news outlets actually had their doubts about the study in the headline, but some of the others treated it like a very legitimate study. And I think some people. Uh, a lot of vegans are hearing from brothers-in-law <laughs> today. Yeah. So where were we, Alex? I think we were talking so, about your focus on the oppression of animals rather than people. Why did you make that choice? Yeah, well, a number of reasons. Um, uh, actually, I'll just give you a few in the interest of time. You know, all this stuff uh, uh, you listeners can see on that never-again.org website. But uh, uh, very br briefly, so uh, there's so many reasons. So uh, I, th I think, for example, that the oppressing animals is the gateway to oppressing humans. When we tell the child that the family dog on his couch is to be loved and cared for, but the pig on his plate is to be tortured, slaughtered, dismembered, and consumed as food. We are giving that child 
society's permission to make an arbitrary decree that one sentient living being gets to live, but another must die. This is exactly the kind of uh, arbitrary lesson that was being given to the Nazi children, that uh, a Christian lives and a Jew dies. Uh, uh, another reason is because uh, animals, of course, as we all know, share our own feelings of joy, affection, sadness, and grief because they can suffer just as you and I do. But uh, perhaps the most important reason is because we can, because each year each of us has the awesome power to spare a hundred land and aquatic sentient living beings just by choosing a diet that also happens to be better for our personal health and the health of our planet. Unfortunately, none of us have that same power to save human victims of oppression. But again, there are more reasons on the website. So because we're short on time, I would uh, just ask people to look it up there. Mm, we we can do that, and we put that other uh, website on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net as well. So uh, today, um, I've already said it's October 2nd, I'll say it again, and it happens to be the 37th annual observance of Far World Day for Farmed Animals, which you launched in 1983, the year I went vegan. So what motivated you to launch that observance? Well... So I, I had the, yeah I, I I did that in 1981 I actually went vegan and uh, and I was trying to figure out back then you know it was kind of like uh, like like trying to find your way through the wilderness we we didn't really we we, we faced the enormity of the problem of of meat consumption and the billions of animals that were being slaughtered each year. And we we're trying to figure out what to do. And I heard this apocryphal tale about some barbaric tribe. I don't even know where it was or if it even existed. But the, the idea was that if, if a member of the tribe committed an offense against another, there would be a variety of punishments uh, ranging from uh, reprimands to beating to maybe losing a limb or, or even being killed. And in some extreme circumstances, if the offense was just beyond all comprehension, uh, not only was the offender killed, but his body was roasted and consumed so that there would be no trace that that person ever existed. And, and it occurred to me that we're doing the very, we're inflicting this extreme form of punishment and cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys that have done us no harm whatsoever. And so it seemed to me that the very first step, that the very most basic remedy is to, is to have a day once a year where we actually acknowledged and recognized and memorialized and mourned these innocent creatures. And so that was the idea behind the World Day for Farm Animals. And uh, it's been observed every year since then, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on how much effort we put into promoting it. Well, that's great. Well, we're observing it right now. Now, I know you also started something else um, in the spring, March 20th. Uh, it's, I believe, now just called the Meat Out. It used to be called the Great American Meat Out. What's happened with that? Yeah, so that was uh, that started in 1985, and uh, I remember <laughs> the U.S. Senate was being lobbied by the meat industry to establish National Meat Week, <laughs> of all things, and uh, and we were trying to do something about it uh, and we had all kinds of ideas people were throwing out and finally somebody suggested 
<laughs> let's have the great American meet out. And, uh, and I said, meet out, what's that? And they said, well, you know, just like the great American smoke out. And I didn't even know about that, but that was something that the American Cancer Society had done in, in uh, I guess, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, trying to get people to to quit smoking. So, so we did. But so the idea was that we were going to have information tables where we were going to ask people to pledge to uh, go meatless for a week. Uh, but you know that was before the days of the internet, and uh, that's when communication and advocacy was much more personal. And now uh, Meetout is no longer plays the important role that it did before the internet. So we ter- we actually turned it over to another organization, Compassion Over Killing, and they are. Uh, doing it each year since uh, 19 uh, since 2 years ago yeah i see so as you look at where it's all come from and i love these stories of the early days but we are in the internet era the digital era and things are growing very rapidly because of that so just looking at it from having been there from the beginning what do you see in today's movement and what's the most important thing that each of us as individuals hearing you today can do to make a difference for the most animals? Uh, right. So, uh, well, uh, there are a number of things, of course, but most of uh, So in terms of social effort, I think the most promising in terms of saving animal lives is to uh, not only produce but promote plant-based meats, milks, and uh, other animal products. And uh, you don't have to be an investor in Beyond Meat or uh, an inventor of uh, plant-based eggs. You can also... Uh, work from the other end, you can encourage your own uh, institutional cafeteria or school cafeteria or supermarket or restaurant that you frequent to have a good uh, choice of plant-based products on their menus. So that's probably something that everybody can and should be doing to uh, reduce the number of animals killed for food. And how about the movement? Do you see it as strong, vibrant, vital, going places, or does it need a little help? Sure. So the movement uh, has basically uh, practically bifurcated. Uh, There are the the people who have really gone into changing the American food system and in producing and encouraging the production of plant-based foods and thereby reducing the number of animals killed for food. And then the other part of the movement, which includes me and the Animal Rights National Conference, is basically to harbor and preserve the concept that animals have their own worth and dignity and should be treated as uh, individuals worthy of our compassion and respect. So tell us about the Animal Rights National Conference. I know this was another one of your many babies, and now it's being run by other people, but you're still there (laughs) making sure it's all good. So if somebody's sure. never well, been to that, why should they go and what can they expect? Right. So the, the Animal Rights Conference uh, is uh, it's something I launched in 1981, actually. And then with some interruptions for a while, some other people had uh, taken it over. And then I started doing it again in 1997. And the idea behind it is uh, to basically turn a bunch of uh, different groups and individuals, uh, individual activists, 
into a movement, meaning uh, that once a year everybody comes together and uh, for a number of reasons, ranging from learning uh, new advocacy techniques to recharging batteries to learning about different organizations that are available, uh, sampling vegan foods, and uh, just celebrating our common cause, uh, our common ideology of animal rights and veganism. And uh, uh, we're, we're still the sponsors of it. I'm just not personally involved. Uh, there's a young woman who has been with me for 15 years, uh, was running the operations part of it, and now she's also doing the program in addition to that. But we're still behind it. We're still making sure that it happens every year. It's uh, it's what it's the glue that holds our movement together. Mm. Yeah, I, I was there this year, and every year I always think it's the best ever. And I thought that again. So I'm involved uh, in a summit. It's uh, going to be called Vegan Business Rebellion encouraging people to start vegan businesses, succeed with their vegan businesses. And in that, which is going to be happening early December, listeners, I'll let you know more about it. But we're going to be asking business people, what would you do if you had to start over today without any resources or contacts? What would you do? So I want to ask you that, Alex, in terms of animal rights, looking out on the the scene as it is now, if you just showed up today and you were going to enter animal rights, what would you do differently? How would you do that? Uh, I would probably be more involved uh, with the production, distribution, and marketing of plant-based foods because I see that as the key promise in reducing the number of animals killed for food. I think the animal rights movement is still very important in maintaining the ideology, but uh, in terms of reducing the number of animals killed for food, uh, it's not the best way to go. Well, I think you've gone the best way to go because you have changed this world for animals already and so much more. You're still doing the veganblog.org and all the rest. I do believe there is a book in the works that's not specific. We won't talk about that until you say, yes, it's absolutely happening. But uh, when that happens, I certainly want to have you back again on the program. Thank you. Alex, as an animal rights proponent And as a friend, you are one of the people I admire most on this planet. Thank you for who you are, for all you do, and for being on the program today. Listeners, do tune in next week. We're going to be talking about veterinary medicine. Is your vet a vegan? Probably not, but I'll be talking with Dr. Jonas Watson and his wife, Brittany Semeniak of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Dr. Watson won the Animal Welfare Award in 2019 from the World Veterinary Association. You know what? All veterinarians ought to care about animals' welfare, right? Well, listen in, and we'll learn all about that. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. Be happy, be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.